Bibles, 1 Corinthians 14. First Corinthians 14, verses 26 to 33. Well, my brothers and sisters, let's summarize. When you meet together, one will sing, another will teach, another will tell some special revelation God has given. One will speak in tongues, and another will interpret what is said, but everything that is done must strengthen all of you. No more than two or three should speak in tongues. They must speak one at a time, and someone must interpret what they say. But if no one is present who can interpret, they must be silent in your church meeting and speak in tongues to God privately. Let two or three people prophesy, and let the others evaluate what is said. But if someone is prophesying, and another person receives a revelation from the Lord, the one who is speaking must stop. In this way, all who prophesy will have a turn to speak, one after the other, so that everyone will learn and be encouraged. Remember that people who prophesy are in control of their spirit and can take turns. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the meetings of God's holy people. God is not a God of disorder, but a God of peace, as in all the meetings of God's holy people. The word disorder that we're looking for here in Greek is akastasia. No, it's akatastasia. Um, And there are only five occurrences of it in the New Testament. Only five. It means an instability or a state of disorder, disturbance, or confusion. It's the opposite of God's order. And it applies specifically to what happens in church gatherings. So it's a very specific type of disorder that happens when believers are with each other. So again, we can look at 2 Corinthians, for instance, 2 Corinthians 6, 4 through 5, and this is what it says. This is one of the places where a katastasia is used. It says, We patiently endure troubles and hardships and calamities of every kind. We have been beaten, been put in prison, faced angry mobs, worked to exhaustion, endured sleepless nights, and God gone without food. Believe it or not, that word, a katastasia, is in that passage. Specifically, it's referring to angry mobs. So we have this idea of disorder that's being used in 1 Corinthians, talking about how we should be with each other, and then we see the same word used in the things that Paul faced in angry mobs. Um, When Paul tells believers how he labors to not discredit the ministry of God, he notes that he and his fellow disciples um, commended themselves as servants of God in the midst of afflictions, hardships, beatings, imprisonments, tumults, confusion or disorder, in labor, fatigue, in hunger, in purity, in knowledge, in patience, in kindness, in the spirit, in genuine love, in the word, in God's power. And he says, endure in all of these things. And when he says all of these things, he's talking about akatastasia. He's saying that we need to endure or stay true to what we know, even in times of extreme confusion within the body, such that it can cause uh, something small or something large, like a riotous mob. And he says that the reason why him and his fellow disciples do this is specifically to not discredit the work of God. Again, in 2 Corinthians, in chapter 12, we see him say this, Know we tell you as Christ's servants and with God as our witness, everything we do, dear friends, is to strengthen you. For I am afraid 
that when I come, I won't like what I find, and you won't like my response, and I am afraid that I will find quarreling and jealousy and anger and selfishness and slander and gossip and arrogance and disorderly behavior. Again, we see the word akatastasia. Paul reveals that he's worried when he goes back to Corinth, um, where he first talks about this, this idea, this, this type of non-Christian disorder. He's worried that when he goes back, he's going to find that. And with that, he's going to find every state of chaos that he warns against. Here, the word isn't angry mob, and it isn't confusion. It's disturbance. But in Greek, it's still a katastasia. We see Paul make a claim here that everything is done with a goal of strengthening the body. And that's the term that he used again, or also in 1 Corinthians. Everything they do is with a goal of strengthening the body. James, when he speaks of demonic wisdom in chapter 3, he notes that when the wisdom of the flesh and the devil is present, there will be disorder of every kind. Who is wise and understanding among you? Starting at verse 13. Let him show it by his good conduct. But by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom, but if you harbor bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast it. Or deny the truth, such wisdom does not come from above, but it is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and evil practice. That term in English we use is disorder. But that term in Greek, the word that was used by Paul, is akatastasia, the same term. So here we find that the opposite of God's peace, as talked about by James, is akatastasia. The opposite of God's peace is the root of all sorts of confused behavior, ranging from very personal confusion all the way up to an angry, riotous mob. Um, it can be something that causes just emotional discomfort. It can be something that causes a general spiritual confusion within the church. Um, and it can be something that is communal in nature. Something that, like I said, is a riotous mob. Something that's communal in nature that causes everybody to get angry. But the point is, is that it is a spectrum. It's a spectrum of disorder. Of specifically anti-God disorder. So what we're talking about here is not just things being out of order, say, in your refrigerator. We're talking about something that is specifically anti-God. James calls it demonic wisdom. Those things, when I say they're, that they're anti-God, what I'm saying is they're outside of God's plan and his wisdom, and they're an opposite specifically to God's peace. So they are an opposite to God's peace. Disorder is an opposite to God's peace. So then the question becomes, what is God's peace? The word used for peace in Scripture is arene, and it's the root of the name Irene, for instance. Incidentally, it can refer to harmony as opposed to discord, order instead of chaos. It can refer to contentment uh, instead of discontent. And it, unlike akatastasia, which is a very specific word that only appears five times, as I noted, appears in the New Testament approximately 95 times. So what we see is that akatastasia is a very specific disorder Whereas God's peace is a promise that is actually very large. And what it talks about is a state of tranquility. Um, it can talk about a state of national tranquility. So um, exemption from the havoc of warfare, for instance. 
So it can talk about national tranquility, and then it can be about individual tranquility, personal, and then it can be about individuals and their tranquility, so harmony or concord between people. It can talk about security and safety and prosperity and felicity. It can talk about having a peace of um, knowing that the Messiah is coming. It can talk about one's assurance of salvation. It can talk about uh, the state of blessing given to people who live in an upright and devout righteous state before God. So there's a lot of application here and a lot of promise. 95 times it occurs, but there's only five times that the idea of this specific anti-God discord uh, appears. So to be clear about what I'm saying, God's peace is an opposite to disorder. God's peace, which has multiple applications, is an opposite to a specific type of disorder. So God's peace is also a spectrum of behavior and thought. One might say that whereas uh, man's disorder or demonic wisdom is a spectrum that encompasses about five steps, God's peace is a spectrum that encompasses about a hundred steps. And so it's a much larger spectrum with a much larger application. It's far more reaching in Scripture. Um, but let's try to sum it up. Those who have God's peace will fall within his natural order. Because remember, disorder is the opposite of peace, according to God. So those who have God's peace will fall within God's natural order. And because of this, they will have a natural tranquility and ease to their actions and their behaviors, not only in themselves, but with people in general, and then even as a general nation, they can have that peace. You'll notice that contained in the verse that tells us our God is a God of order and not disorder is the notion of a dichotomy. What is a dichotomy? It's when two truths sit next, sit next to each other. They're both true. It's when you're holding two things at the same time. Notably, the disorder is equal to a lack of the spectrum of peace, right? I want to be very clear about that. Disorder is the antithesis to God's peace, both personally and communally, and that this disorder is a result of being, of living outside the bounds of God's will for us. Now, that is my intro for today. What are we talking about when we're talking about that? We are talking this month about the fruit of leadership, specifically of godly leadership. The fruit of godly leadership, very simply, is one that produces discipline. And you might say, how do you get discipline? You're sitting here talking about peace. Well, pay attention. 1 Corinthians 14.26-33 is what I read earlier. I'm not going to read it again for you. We started a little late, which is why I'm going kind of fast. But it's the, it's the one that I read at the beginning, where he talks about, you know, two people prophesying and people doing that in order and so on and so forth, right? What is it that Paul is doing here when he's 
writing 1 Corinthians, when he's writing to the church at Corinth, what's he saying about peace and confusion here as he writes to them? He's telling the church that there is a right way to do something and that there is a wrong way. He's saying there's a right way to do something and a wrong way. One exemplifies the nature of God, that God is a God of order, and one exemplifies the corrupt nature of men. And Paul is specifically admonishing, um, <clears throat> he's specifically admonishing the believer to interact with each other in a way that produces the fruit that is consistent with God's nature and not man's nature. Namely, he wants people to interact with each other in a disciplined way, which is on the spectrum of peace. And this is true strength, according to him. This is what strengthens the body. Not brute force, not sheer power, but meekness in understanding where we fall in God's created order and relying on it alone. That's what's true. That's what true strength is, and that's where peace comes from. Falling in line with God's order. In contrast, any other fruit is evidence that we are not living in God's nature. That of order, that which produces peace in our personal interactions and in our lives with others, that's God's order. That's where our strength should be. Anything else is not God's order. In fact, it causes disorder, and then from that causes every type of evil of every kind, according to the Apostle Paul. The inference, then, is by default made that any deviation from that order is the root of every bad thing on the spectrum of disorder, including personal confusion, all the way straight up to mob rioting and Lord of the Flies next level type behavior. But right now, we're talking about God's leadership and its fruit specifically. So what is being posited to you right now about God's leadership and its fruit? What is the fruit of godly leadership? So last week, we noted that a starting place for understanding it is that godly leadership is that which defines its first fruit through what? What? What is the seed? Personal sacrifice. Right? The sacrifice of Christ on the cross. That is where our first fruit comes from, and that's where the first fruit of godly leadership needs to come from. It has to have the flavor of death in the work of Christ on the cross. And that is hard enough as it is. People don't like adding the flavor of death. I kind of think of it as people not liking the smoky Cajun flavor. But now, we're going to speak more about that for its distinct qualities. And we start by noting this, that godly leadership, that godly leadership's fruit is one of order and discipline. There's a right way to do something, and there's a wrong way to do something. Namely, that what comes from godly leadership should always look orderly and should always be disciplined and that, yes, a godly leader will produce those who are committed to God's will in their lives. But as a result of this, those people will be those people who live in the spectrum of his peace and not in the spectrum of disorder. 
And in this truth will come true strength in the face of trials and adversities. So an easy way of saying this is that God's discipline equals an unshakable peace. That's the easy way of saying this. God's discipline equals peace, a peace which is unshakable, one that is strong. Now, keep in mind, when we think about peace, we oftentimes don't think that peace and strong can be with each other. In order to have peace, people cannot be strong. They cannot be abrasive. That's not what this is saying. In fact, it's saying the opposite. You need to be strong in your peace, which is based upon staying within God's order. So, to all of you who don't live in that unshakable spectrum of peace, which I think is the majority of us at different times, right? At different times in our lives throughout even this week, some of us will come across these moments of doubt, these moments where we're not at peace, these moments of confusion, so on and so forth, where you have entered into the spectrum of disorder. Those who do not live in the spectrum of peace, who instead live in confusion, who instead live in anxiety, that's our, that's our, uh, a word, our word for it in this society, who live in the spectrum of disorder, who live in a world where bitterness and envy and hatred are at the seat of every relationship. It's always knocking at the door, always trying to get in, whether it's our door or somebody else's, who, who, who have secrets that they keep, who are always afraid of getting into a relationship because that relationship might turn into another chance to be hurt. Here's a secret for you. If you want that to change in your life, add a healthy dose of God's discipline. Doesn't seem to make sense, but it's true. God's discipline is what causes peace. Follow Christ in a meaningful way. Pastor Monty likes to say this on his on his show. He doesn't like the word Christian. But see, here's the thing that we do like is Christian implies in it disciple of Christ, right? Disciple of Christ means disciplined in Christ. If you are a follower of Christ, if you are a person who claims to be a Christian but you lack discipline in your Christianity, then you are not actually a follower of Christ any more than a person claims to be a black belt in martial arts but never practices. You just aren't. Or a person claims to be potty trained but can't poop on the toilet. Follow Christ in a meaningful way, in an eager way, and those things will change. So it's not just discipline. It's a specific type of discipline, not just any discipline, but a specific discipline of seeking first the kingdom of God and his will in your life. Because remember what I said is that God is a God of order and not of chaos, and that is the root of peace. And so the discipline is in putting yourself in a position where you are falling under the order of God, falling under the will of God. When you discipline yourself in falling under God's will, then the peace will come. So it's not just having discipline. It's not just making sure that you work out every day, that you eat a specific way, so on and so forth. I mean, you can do those things unto God and they'll be helpful. But what we're talking about here is having a discipline that seeks God's will. How many of you wake and start the day with 
a message between you and God saying, what do you have me to do today? That's the question. That's the type of discipline I'm talking about, where the very first thing you ask at the beginning of the day is, what will you have me do today? Philippians talks about this quite a bit in, in practical application, right? Talks about a discipline that creates order from chaos and turns lives into a measure of strength. Paul admonishes the church at Philippi this in uh, chapter 4, verses 6 through 9. This is one of these power verses that you should have memorized. Even just saying Philippians 4, you should be like, oh, okay, I know what he's going to talk about. Um, Philippians 4, 6 through 9 goes like this. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done, and then you will experience God's peace. Yes, the word there is arene, which exceeds anything that we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. And now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable and think about the things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Keep putting into practice all you learned and received from me, everything that you heard from me and saw me doing, and then the God of peace will be with you. Notice trigger words and phrases here. Pray about everything. Thank him for all he has done. Fix your thoughts. Keep putting into practice. All of those statements are not merely temporary suggestions to help you with not worrying or to get you through your anxiety. There is something that is attached to them. They demand a regimented existence. They demand from us a regimented existence and they promise for us an infinite reward that exceeds human wisdom and exceeds human experience and understanding. The first thing that they demand that you should take note of, there's four things here. The first thing that they demand is that they demand that you have a correct orientation. There's a lot about the word orientation in this day and age. It simply means what direction you are facing. We are to have a correct orientation. Notice that Paul starts here with a juxtaposition of two ideas. I've always found this really interesting. Two ideas, worry and prayer. And what he says is that basically, according to Paul, in action, worry is the opposite of prayer. Do not worry, but in all things pray. That's pretty interesting. So in the God infrastructure, worry is the opposite of prayer. In this day and age, we would say that worry is the opposite of, say, peace, right? Not according to Paul. Worry is the opposite of prayer. What do we get about that? Well, worry is oriented on the self, is it not? It's rife with what I would call in-facing questions. In-facing ideas like, how can I? How will I? I don't think that I can do this. I'm not enough to do this. And so on and so forth. That is the seat of worry. But prayer is outfacing. Some might even say up 
facing if you believe there is a physical orientation to where God is. It's, face, it's God facing. How about that? Everything becomes directed not toward what can I do, how will I, what can I, could I ever, so on and so forth, so forth, but instead it's directed toward what God can do, which, by the way, is anything that he wants to, according to his will, right? And this is exemplified in the words of Jesus. We sang about it today in Victor. Not my will, but your will be done. Right? Not my will, but your will be done. That is an orientation toward God. It's not an orientation toward self doesn't mean that the self isn't present. It means that the self is being put in subjugation to God. The second thing that is demanded is that a Christian must be consistent with that orientation. You would think that those two would be the same, that when a person changes and orientates themselves toward God, that that would mean that that they've done that. But that's not true. The truth is, is that keeping us there sometimes it's a lot harder than getting us to look there. Remember what it is that Paul says. He says, in all circumstances, in all circumstances. You might be interested to note, I was, just to be, just to be thorough, the Greek word for all there is ponta, which means all. <laughs> it's not... It's not, you know, maybe, maybe it means in most circumstances or something in the Greek. No, it actually means all. Every possible circumstance. Paul notes in every possible circumstance and in everything, we are to be oriented to God through what? Prayer. Do not worry, but instead pray, right? So that brings us to our third point, that this should be done in prayer. Now, this is a a fairly technical point, so I'll do my best here. This is a fairly technical point. Prayer can be corporate, right? We, We can pray together, but the implication is clearly one of a personal ethic, that people are supposed to be oriented in themselves toward God in prayer. In other words, it's not talking about being involved in a prayer group. It's not not talking about um, Corporate prayer, like, for instance, uh, after church, how the men pray together, that's not what it's talking about, although that can be an outworking of it. Basically, what it's saying is that everything should flow naturally from being inclined toward uh, that type of practice of orienting yourself so that there's a personal ethic of communication between you and God. One where we as individuals talk to God. In other words, we're not experiencing these things on our own, or we're not experiencing these things on our own by ourselves, and we're not experiencing these things on our own as earthlings who have a different substance as God. We are experiencing these things with God. So therefore, we have to treat him as if he's with us, and this is done by talking to him. This is done through prayer. Think of it as that sort of cliche of the channel always being open between you and your your lover. You know, back in the day, it was like you call the person and neither of you hangs up, right? And you go to bed and then you wake up in the morning and the person's still there. Isaiah knows what I'm talking about. Now we do it with video chat. But 
this is what we're talking about, right? The idea is that the channel should always be open because there's an orientation toward that person. So not only do we have to have these ideas, but we have to have a personal ethic where we're constantly in communication with God. And that's really what that means. Notice that it's an inclination, right? It's a leaning of personhood rather than a description of physical action. We're not talking about, um, <clears throat> we're not even talking about you using your voice. We're talking about your mind always seeking the will of God. That's what we're talking about. Always asking him, what would you have me to do today, Lord? I am here. I'm ready. What do you want me to do? And this is because prayer is not a physical action. It's not the words. And all of you know that you might be, that, that you can participate in a prayer group and just as easily be looking down at your phone and reading during that prayer time. Or like a little kid, be distracted while everybody else is praying, right? Everybody knows that just because you're in the group, seated, with your butt on the chair, and that when it comes your time and you say some words, that doesn't mean that you're actually with the group in prayer. Prayer is a thought life. I want to be clear about that. Prayer is a thought life. It's not an action in the physical world. So is it an action in your mind? Yeah, 100%. And I would just encourage you that when we do group prayer, and I know it's hard for me, so I assume it's hard for you, that it may be tempting for you to wander. There's a lot of things that you can wander on. You can wander on your kids. You can wander on the supposed cuteness of them. You can wander on, I wonder how that, you know, team, my favorite team is doing, or, you know, what's going on with It too that just came out, so on and so forth. Paul's like, I will not watch that movie. You can wander about those things. What you need to do is pull it back, right? You need to be thinking about what the other person is saying or staying on task. Because in your thoughts, you are communicating with God. And it's in your thought life that matters. So for instance, men, as we sit in this group and we pray together, you should not just be waiting for your turn. You should be thinking about what the other person is saying and agreeing with them, right? You should be agreeing with them and bringing that to God because you're speaking to him together because you don't need words. It is just as much your turn as the other person's turn in your mind. It may not be your turn in the physical world in that moment, but it is your turn in your mind to talk with God who is an infinite God and doesn't need the constraints of time for you to go in a specific order that way. Doesn't need that. And I'm a big believer that we as Christians, one of our main areas and one of the reasons why we have a hard time with anxiety is because we don't have an ethic of a thought life for God. Instead, we let other things push our God thoughts out, and we focus on those things instead.
Jesus notes this in Matthew 6, 5. He says this, When you pray, don't be like hypocrites who love to pray publicly on street corners and in the synagogues where everyone can see them. I tell you the truth, that is all the reward they will ever get. But when you pray, go away by yourself, shut the door behind you, and pray to your Father in private, and then your Father who sees everything will reward you. When you pray, don't babble on and on as the Gentiles do. They think their prayers are answered merely by repeating their words again and again. Don't be like them, for your Father knows exactly what you need, even before you ask Him. Pray like this. Our Father who art in heaven, right? Hallowed be thy name. You guys all know this, right? From this passage, from Matthew 6, we can also add that prayer is not about the words at all, but instead it is about God-oriented thought. It confirms it right there. The thoughts ultimately pray for what? God's will to be done. Have you ever heard somebody misuse the passage in Scripture that says, uh, usually prosperity preachers, well, you misuse the passage in Scripture that says that if you earnestly pray for these things, God will give it to you. You guys ever heard that misused? Well, of course that's true. Except when we say that prayer, our Father who's in heaven, your name be holy, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today what we need. Help us to forgive others. Your kingdom come. What are we talking about there? We're not talking about praying for ourselves. We're talking about praying for God and His will. Right? So of course, of course God will give you what you want when you pray for His will to be done. Because His will is what He wants to happen too. That passage is misused because they missed the point. They've lost the plot. It's important that we pray for God's will to be done. It's also important that we be willing to ask for things that we need. What's the point that's made? The point that's made is that, yeah, of course God knows what it is that you need. He knows before you even ask him. And yet, Jesus teaches us to what? Pray for the things that we need. Give us this day our daily bread, for instance. Right? That's a blueprint for healthy communication. That's a blueprint for healthy communication itself. We need to communicate for the sake of communicating. And so often in this day and age, we don't want that type of communication. We want efficiency. We don't want to just sit there and listen to each other. We want people to spit it out and then, you know, get out of there. Because we have so many things pulling us in so many directions. But the truth is, is that if we have a God-oriented thought life, then we are going to communicate for the sake of communication. And I want you to take that seriously. Think about your feelings of intimacy for others. When you feel intimate with them, you want to communicate with them, don't you? How is it that you can tell when somebody is not intimate with you? It's when they stop communicating with you, right? 
You want to talk with people that you're intimate with, even if they've experienced the same events as you. You want to talk with them. You want to debrief it. That's what we call it. You want to debrief those same events. How is that going between you and God? You should be debriefing those events. It doesn't matter that God already knows what happened. It doesn't matter that in, depending on your view of free will or predestination, that God even wrote those events. When you really like a movie, you want to go to a, this is a terrible example, but it's coming on Saturday, so I just want to say it. When you're going to a movie, you want to go to a Comic-Con panel, and you want to listen to the people talk about the movie, and you want to ask them questions. Should you not be able to talk with them because they already know everything about the movie, because they're the ones who filmed it, they're the ones who made it, so on and so forth? No. That should be appreciated, right? This interaction between artist and person who is watching art. <laughs> spectator. Artist and spectator. It would also be wrong for us to move on from this passage if we didn't note the obviously glaring elephant in the room that is noted so many times before but needs to be stated again. That even Jesus prayed for something that he wanted but knew he couldn't have. Even Jesus. If you think that you are too good to talk to God about something that's going on in your mind because you, I don't know, you're so righteous that you could never ask for God to give you something that may fall outside of his will, but of course, his will be done, then you must be so much better than Jesus. Because Jesus did that. Of course, that caveat is always there, that his orientation was God's will first. Not my will be done, but your will be done. It, perhaps more than this, should be stressed even more as a final point on that matter, that like Jesus, we should be thankful. We should be thankful for whatever comes our way. In other words, we can't simply switch our orientation about God in our thought life simply because we're uncomfortable comfortable with the current state of God's answer to our life. James talks about this when he talks about the way in which we ask. You do not have because you don't ask, and when you do ask, you don't ask with the right type of thought life. You ask for the wrong reason, reasons that are selfish. We can't switch our orientation because we don't like what God tells us. Consider, if you will, the hall of faith in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. Consider, if you will, the hall of faith. It speaks of those who had hope in a Messiah, but died before he came. And the author of Hebrews expresses the reality of God's impact in our lives on the basis of our hope in him. So Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13 through 16. It says, all these people died still believing what God had promised them. They did not receive what was promised, but they saw it all from a distance and they welcomed it. They agreed that they were foreigners and nomads here on earth. Obviously, people who say such things are looking forward to a country that they can call their own. And if they longed for the country that they came from, they could have gone back, but they were looking for a better place, a heavenly homeland. And that is why God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. 
we have to remember that though our understanding is limited, when oriented towards God's understanding, we can live beyond that finiteness. And we can participate with his lasting narrative that he's writing in the book of life. We can live as God's citizens in the life to come rather than looking back to the life that we have now. We can live powerfully in the certainty of God's grace and love for us even when we don't know what worries may await us around the corner. Even as things as powerful as death or disease or war or disasters come. Those things are inconsequential compared to what God's inheritance brings us when we set our sights on him and we live in that relationship day in and day out. Jesus says that where you store your treasure, there your heart will be. I was listening to Mike Winger, this pastor in California that I follow, and he was talking about um, Monopoly. And he was talking about how he just really just is great at Monopoly. He crushes his family at Monopoly to the point where they don't want to play with him. And he said something interesting. He said, not understanding this thing that we're talking about right now is a little bit like crushing at Monopoly and feeling like a rich man. The truth is, is that when you're done, you go back to being the exact same way that you were. And that's the truth. There's a real world, and there is a false world. The false world is the game of monopoly, and you may crush it there. You may say that you've you know, got all these investments and so on and so forth, but I tell you the truth, when you put that game away, you're the same person that started playing that game. You're not any different, and you're not rich because you're a millionaire in monopoly. It should also be noted that the people in Hebrews, in the Hall of Faith, they weren't rich in this world, but they're rich in the world to come, and they were thankful for it. They didn't get to see it. In fact, depending on your view of time and space and quantum theory and so on and so forth, they still haven't seen it. But they were thankful to be part of God's narrative ahead of time because they were looking forward to what they knew that he would accomplish. And that took discipline. It took discipline. They weren't participating in the spectrum of discord. And the truth is, is that's where we lose a semblance of our lives. Is he not being thankful. That's where the waves become too big for us. That's when we stop being thankful. When the ground becomes too shaky for us, that's when we stop being thankful. When the temperature becomes too hot to handle, that's when we stop being thankful. And the truth is, it's really at this point where we stop being thankful that things start to fall apart and we start to enter into discord. And then all the bad things happen. Instead of thanking God for our relationship with him, 
and continuing to orient ourselves within the relationship and practice thanks. Notice I use the word practice thanks. Have a discipline of thanking God no matter what comes, no matter what is coming. We instead begin to slowly orient ourselves the other way. Right? And we take that infamous step that Paul talks about into rejecting God's orientation instead for our own. Remember, Paul notes it like this. Where am I going to go? Give me an address. Romans 1. Thank you, Elder. Paul notes it like this when he says, Yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship Him as God or even give Him thanks. And then they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. As a result, their minds became dark and confused and claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. And then, and then, they wouldn't give him thanks. And then, notice when Paul says, or even give him thanks, we should understand that he is noting that giving God thanks is rudimentary. Giving God thanks is a rudimentary and seminal human experience. It doesn't take teaching. It's something that we just do naturally. It comes even before directing worship toward God. What do I mean by that? Is it any wonder that those who can't thank God lose their ability to make the word human mean anything? Instead, they become like animals, those who can't thank God. Mere machines driven by instinct and passion alone, devoid of any truth and by extension, any beauty. We see this playing out in our own culture, and we have seen it play out in many cultures before. Just look at how far we've devolved from even the animistic pagan cultures which sought to at least give thanks to something other than themselves. Remember, it's a seminal human experience to give thanks. Even the Native Americans, for instance, participated. They weren't Christians, but they participated with us in the first Thanksgiving as part of the seminal human experience of giving thanks. Even if not to the Christian gods, something at least other than themselves, they understood their place in the natural order. Something at least other than themselves. At least under their care, there was harmony. All the colors of the, the wind. There was harmony with nature of sorts. The circle of life was appreciated and upheld. Boundaries were kept intact. But now what we see is where we, where we have gone by introducing ultra-human Western culture, which claims that we should bear no allegiance toward anyone or anything, and that everything that we have ever gained is on our own backs, being the products of nothingness but the sheer will of human brilliance, unqualified and arrogant. Thanksgiving has truly become Black Friday. 
the Native Americans, the Wiccans, the Druids, the Egyptians, the list kind of goes on and on. They were wrong in not worshiping God as God. They were wrong in not worshiping God as God. Instead, they worshiped his creation. But the atheists and the secular humanists are worse because they refused to even give thanks. Instead, claiming even the natural human default orientation of thanks and gratitude for something other than themselves, they even steal that for themselves, believing instead only in the nothingness of life. And now we live in a world where people claim to be wise in their own understanding, orienting their lives on every selfish desire and lust and ambition that they have ever even had an inkling of. They live in an abhorrent celebration of their own greatness, all the while making themselves lower than even animals who don't need to think about how sexuality or gender or identity factor in something as obvious as procreation. To those of us Christians who celebrate alongside with them their slogans and stories and their songs and their virtue signaling, endless virtue signaling, mindlessly espousing the wisdom of the age as we buy their albums and we watch their videos and we long to be YouTube famous with them. Fair warning. The so-called emperor has no clothes. And we look dumb applauding them. Naked we came into the world, and naked we will leave. A godly leader calls his people to be oriented toward God in a consistent way that is personal and prayerful. And that is a seed that he plants in his people that will bloom into the fruit of a peace that surpasses all understanding. And in that will be true strength. Unfortunately, that seed is not so obvious a thing, nor as prevalent a thing as you might think it should be within the church. And this isn't where we incline to find our strength at all. And this is precisely why it needs to be talked about. Because we have a bunch of God-based leaders who don't really know what seed they're planting, how to plant it, or how to nurture it, and they only know how to harvest and consume because they're not thankful at all for what God is doing. And even that skill of harvesting and consuming, that's fading too. No new Christians just ones moving between churches is the thing that stats are showing. People aren't becoming even Christians anymore. So it may seem like churches are doing well, and they call themselves strong because they're filling seats, but the truth is that there isn't strength at all, and it's just an, illus an illusory thing that souls are being gained and won. The truth is, is that we're just shuffling the ones that we have between ourselves like a twisted game of hot potato. 
If anything, we're losing souls. As Christians, treat ourselves to an endless parade of lackluster showmanship without any real discipleship to ground believers into a place where they can thrive. Maybe, maybe people will stay in the churches that they're hot potatoing in until they're old and gray. Maybe they'll just keep playing hot potato until they're old and gray. Eventually they'll die in whatever church they last landed in. But I guarantee you their kids won't. They don't. And statistically they are not. Across denominations and local bodies, the truth is in the stats. Young people are rejecting that sort of pandering and self-aggrandizing across the board. And it's coming to bear that the moment they hit adulthood, they leave. And that's God's judgment upon us. For the way in which our people have lived undisciplined. while being the generation that so clearly has everything plainly given to us and spelled out for us. Instead, we need godly leaders who are focused on outlining the narrow path, a path that produces something that can only be seen with God. We don't need godly leaders to be cool. We don't need godly leaders to be hip. We don't need godly leaders to be new, and we certainly don't need godly leaders to be clever. We need godly leaders to be themselves disciplined. We need them to be committed. We need godly leaders who plant a seed that is godly. So it always comes down to this. Do we hold up to that scrutiny? Do we hold up to that scrutiny in this church? Do we hold up to that scrutiny in the church at large? Examine for yourselves. Truly ask ask yourselves about those four basic points that I outlined. Are we oriented toward God? Are we consistent in our orientation? Do we take this responsibility personally? And are we thankful for whatever God gives us? Are we oriented toward God? Oftentimes we like to check that box and say, yeah. But then, in the same breath that we're saying, yeah, we're oriented towards God, we also equally hold a different box. Like, God wants us to be happy. Or, God wants us to live our best life. I don't personally think that the Christian church holds very well on this point. In fact, sadly, I sadly I would say that if Jesus himself was to show up that he might get an offering that he might get an offering from the Christian leaders much the same way that Peter offered to him. You know, really, you're going to kill yourself? I won't, let that, I won't let, that, let that happen. Like, imagine, imagine, Jesus, how much good you can do in this world if you just kept going, if you just stayed alive. 
God wants you to live your best life, Jesus. That's the best way to show us our relationship with God. Live your best life. You know, when Peter did that to Jesus, Jesus called it satanic. Nowadays, we call it Christian. We have to be consistent in our orientation towards God. Have you ever noticed the sudden introduction of the term seasons into Christian vocabulary? I noticed it. It really annoyed me at first. Um, You know, people say, well, we're in this type of season, or we're in that type of season. For the record, I don't have a problem with that analogy, because life does ebb and flow, as we know. There are seasons of things. But here's where I have a problem. Seasons change independent of us, right? We don't change the seasons. The seasons change independent of us. And anyone who claims that a season has changed and therefore they should change should make sure that they're not the one changing the seasons to fit their comfortability levels. It's disingenuous to claim that in the heat of the summer, because you have the AC on, it's actually winter. That's delusional at best and lying at worst. Seasons change around us. They don't change because of us. Secondly, we don't change, people. We adapt. We don't change. We adapt. So when it's summer, we adapt. That means we take off clothes. When it's winter, we do what with clothes? We bundle up. We layer them. We still go about our lives. We still continue paying bills. We still go to work and have jobs. We still have relationships and so on and so forth. We are not beholden to change simply because the season has changed. Changing seasons cannot necessitate changes of orientations. It cannot necessitate changes of identity. It cannot necessitate changes of character. There's only one thing that can change your identity, your orientation, your character. You know what that one thing is? God. Only God can do this. Only God can say that you are a new creature in this season. And that it's no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you. Let's be clear about that. Whenever you're a new creature and God changes you, it is always the same creature. Christ. Not you, not some new orientation, identity. You cannot in any sort of wisdom say that there is a season that has changed your identity and that basically you change every time it turns a a new season in life. Because, I'm just being honest, you're dumb. That's not how it works. When something bad happens, you don't become a new person. That's like psychosis. (laughs) There's something wrong with that. You're the person that you were. You adapt. Let's speak briefly about orientations. 
Whole groups of churches right now, whole groups of churches right now are entering into civil wars with each other about whether to change their definitional orientations, to allow members, for instance, of the clergy to add sexual attraction to definitional orientation. What do I mean by that? Why is this a problem? Because our orientation is toward God's alone, to God, toward God alone and nothing else. That's why. Our orientation is supposed to be toward God alone and nothing else. At the point I start adding other orientations to my orientation in God, I've lost the plot. There's no such thing as a gay Christian. There's just Christians. That would be as ridiculous as saying, I'm a heterosexual Christian. There's just Christians. And Paul notes this when he says, there's no male, no female, no Jew, nor Gentile, nor slave, nor master. We're just followers of God. My orientation is first and always a disciple of Christ. First and always a disciple of Christ. It is nothing more and it is absolutely nothing less. And so should be all of yours. Whatever doesn't violate that is morally neutral. That's the truth. Whatever doesn't violate your orientation toward God is morally neutral. God doesn't care whether you drink Pepsi or Coke, although one is right and one is wrong. Not before God, though. And so the truth is, because it's morally neutral, I live in the discipline of that mindset, and because of that, I should be free. Listen carefully to what I'm about to say, okay? Don't accuse me of heresy later. Listen carefully. Because of that, because whatever doesn't violate that is morally neutral, I should be free then to love however I love. Any orientation that supersedes that is evil. I live my life with only one question about my so-called precious appetites. One question about my so-called precious appetites. How is this thing that I love useful? How is it useful for my God, and what would he think about it? I guess that's two questions. That's the question that those who live in every other orientation refuse to ask every morning and every night, but it is one that will demand an answer when we all stand before the judgment seat of our master at the end. So you want to love however you want to love? That's fine. What will your master think of it? Our master thinks a lot about anybody 
that orientates themselves on anything other than Christ. If I don't teach this, if I don't cultivate God's true orientation, I might as well be stoking the flames of hell myself in anticipation of their tainted sacrifice. We should be personal and prayerful. A Christian should be seeking God and his thought life. You can't be claiming to do this if you only engage him at church. You can't be claiming to do this if you only do this during the commercial breaks of your life. Especially if you already fill that time with social media. Because let's be honest, that's what we do. If we're one of those people who doesn't do on-demand, commercial comes on, pull out the phone. I'm doubting that you all are pulling up the Bible app. Your phone is not the Ark of the Covenant. You can't have a relationship with God by looking at your phone. How many churches do you know that foster prayer amongst the young? My experience is that prayer is the mark of an old believer. That's my experience. Prayer is the mark of an old believer. It's something only expected of old believers when I look at churches. It's old believers who go to prayer meetings, for instance. And that's one reason why we don't do that here at ABF. That's one reason why when you see us at the end of service, you see all ages, the whole spectrum of men, right? We want them to learn the skill. It is a skill to talk to your partner, our partner being God, right? We want them to learn the skill so that it can transform them into strong pillars because we understand that having a thought life oriented toward God that is consistent does what? It creates peace, and that peace becomes the strength of our relationship with God and with others. So introducing that to young people is what's going to make strong pillars of the church later. Prayer is not just for the old. The only reason why the old people do it is because they get it. We need to have a sincere hope for that instead of having a sincere annoyance about that. I fight that every week. I'll be honest with you. Every time we go to pray, I fight that. I have to say to myself, ugh. I had a strong prayer life with God. But it is hard, especially after I preach. Especially when we have communion. To come together and be like, we need to pray together so that we can demonstrate for our people this. You know what it requires? Discipline. That's what it requires. Yeah, it's a full circle. Thanks, John. <laughs> it requires discipline to do that. Our children, our hope is that they don't grow up not knowing the voice of God. What do I mean by that? Samuel was raised by the high priest. 
We know that the high priest was not a great teacher. His children, Phineas and Ferb, not true, Phineas and something, they uh, became terrible people. He didn't really teach about the voice of God. But God directly called Samuel. Samuel had no idea who was calling him, and he had to be told by the high priest, hey, that's God, you should probably answer him. And so when Samuel does answer him, he says, here I am, Lord. Here I am. I don't want our children to have to be told, here I am. I don't want them to have to be told that that's the voice of God calling them. And that's going to require us to be disciplined, to demonstrate for our children a thought life of prayer so that they will say of their own volition and their own accord, here I am, Lord. Remember I started off by saying that every morning a person with a thought life of prayer wakes up and says, what do you have me to do today? Is that what your children wake up saying? Or do they wake up saying, what are you going to do for me today? Don't feel bad about that. That just means we need to work on it together as a group, right? But that should tell you how prescient it is. It's a now issue that we need to deal with. We need to have a thought life that's oriented toward that. And it's not just for the men. It's for the women too, obviously. Our prayer as men is always for you as women. And our hope is that as you observe us, that you will take that and that you will build from that an ethic that mirrors that. So that's a question for you, a challenge, an admonishment. Have you ever thought about doing that yourselves? And I don't mean as a single person, although, hey, that's a good one too. But I mean together. Because that would be helpful. Our goal is that God would be ever-present in our conversations. That he would be seen as the ever-present observer in all of our conversations. And that there would just be a general knowledge and acceptance that God is with us. And that means that he's surfing every site that we go to. For the men especially because we deal with this particular affliction, including the porn sites, right? That we look beyond our narrow vision and we say, God is with us in everything. I need to be really thinking about my partner. God, I'm talking about God. That he's watching every show with us. That he's sitting there while you laugh at things that make fun of his natural order. Like jokes about marriage and about men being lesser than they should be and so on and so forth. Is that something you would feel comfortable with if God was a physical being who was sitting next to you watching these things with you? Because if it's not, stop it. The last thing again is whether we're thankful. Do we give him thanks for the bad times? To pull back the curtain for you, the next five years of sermons 
are going to be spent dealing with the concept of being vigilant, learning to be always on. That's what that means, vigilant, to be always on, right? That's what the next five years are going to be dealing with. Despite the desperate times, despite the lean times, despite the hungry times. And understanding this concept of thanks is what will make that next five years successful for you as a church. For all of us, for all of your lives, it will make it successful when you start learning to give thanks for the cross that you bear just as Jesus did. Learning to hug it. Think about that concept. Don't think for a second that Jesus didn't know what was coming. And as he embraced that cross, don't think for a second that he wasn't philosophically smart enough or wise enough to understand what that meant for him to hold that cross. He embraced it. And he carried it. Splinters and all. And he did that because it brings the inheritance that he hoped for. So are you thankful only when you get the good things? Even those who don't believe in anything are thankful, except for the atheists. When they don't get the good things, or when they get the good things. We're a people who's called to be holy and set apart. I was only joking. There are atheists who are thankful, but that's because they're inconsistent with their worldview. Just for future perpetuity viewing purposes. Are you thankful only for the good things? How does that make you any different? What difference does that make you? You... You shouldn't just be thankful when you're treated well. What makes us holy and set apart is that we don't fall apart when everything and everyone else does because we understand how blessed we are to be loved by God so much. Do you remember the video that I showed last week of uh, his last name's Cook? He's a man who struggles with same-sex attraction and they asked him, isn't this completely like not cool? It's unfair for God to, to make it so that you have to deal with something where you are struggling with this attraction. That's God like treating you unfair, right? And his response was, no. What's unfair is that he died for my sins. That's unfair. So that leads him to be able to do what? To thank God for everything including his thorn in the flesh. So are you suffering because something has happened to you in your life or because you have to put up with something day in and day out? Are you thanking God for it? Because you should be. Not saying it's not hard, not saying it's not difficult, but I'm saying this is the orientation that we should have, where we're thanking God 
for everything because we understand how blessed we are that he loves us so much. Godly fruit is one that produces a disciplined people in all of these areas. People who are ultimately thankful, who have a thought life that is consistent in its orientation toward God. And when the effects of that discipline take place, that is when a person starts to experience the peace of God in their lives. And if you're wanting to experience that more, then you have to tune yourself up. You have to tune yourself up. You have to be stronger in your orientation toward Him. You have to be more consistent than you have been. You have to let that permeate and extend from a godly thought life. That means pray more. Not pray selfishly more, but that means pray more for God's will to be done. Consider His wise counsel every day by reading his scripture by speaking with his shepherds and your fellow brothers and sisters in christ and above all that challenge yourselves to be thankful veer to the narrow and the disciplined path look up to those in your life who in god admonish you to tighten yourself up to attune yourself to god's standard be leaders who offer peace through holiness and not peace through absolution, not peace without a cost, because that type of peace isn't good for anyone. Not all peace that we can have is good peace. Hitler offered a peace. Mutually assured destruction in the Cold War, that would have been peace. That's not the type of peace that we're offering, is it? Instead of planting seeds through enabling and turning a blind eye to our sinful lusts, offer discipline, offer self-sacrifice, the same type of peace that Christ offered to you. Don't seek peace in your life. Instead, seek God and peace will find you. Two questions. What of the four areas, God, orientation, consistency toward God, a God-based thought life, and thanks being to God, do you have the most to grow in in your life? What of those four do you have to grow in most? And second, is there an area in your life, past or now, where you have sought God's peace but without seeking his discipline. If you have time to discuss, please do it.